Welcome to Jesus on Every Page, a podcast to help you discover and enjoy Christ in the Old Testament. This week, I want us to look at Jephthah's perfect vow in Judges 11. Yes, you heard right, Jephthah's perfect vow. Before that, let me just highlight a couple of online resources. You'll find links to these resources underneath the podcast on my blog at headhearthand.org. First, we've been looking at David quite a lot over recent weeks on the podcast, so I wanted to link first of all to an article by Nick Badsick on David as a type of Christ. This is how he begins his article. From my earliest days as a believer, I've had a fascination with the biblical and typological parallels between King David and Jesus. Much has been written on this subject, but recently I stumbled across Jonathan Edwards' excellent exposition of David as a type of Christ in Types of the Messiah, in his volume on typology. Here are the historical, typological parallels from which Edward set out David, his life, offices and experiences as covenantal and typological preparations for the Messiah. Nick's article is lengthy, detailed, but extremely helpful and edifying. The other article I want to highlight is Preaching Christ in All the Scriptures by Tony Merida. He says, I want to clarify four biblical reasons why the preacher should desire to preach Christ from the whole Bible. First, he says, Jesus clearly saw himself as the fulfillment of the Old Testament writings. Second, the apostles knew that the Bible focused upon Jesus. Third, due to the work of the Spirit in glorifying Christ. And finally, the thematic and climactic nature of Scripture. This is a shorter article, simpler article than Nick Batsik's, but again, some excellent quotes in here, some excellent points that again will give you some really helpful tips for preaching Christ from all the Scriptures. So, onwards to Judges 11. When I came to preach on Jephthah in Judges 11, I was expecting to preach Jephthah as a beacon of warning against making rash vows and promises. Having studied it, I ended up teaching Jephthah as an example of how to perfectly keep a perfect vow. And as such, he points us to Jesus. That's right, he neither sinned in making the vow, or in keeping the vow. Let me explain. First of all, though, a brief introduction to the judges. First question is, when did the judges happen? Well, the biblical context is, Exodus has Israel delivered from Egypt. Numbers and Deuteronomy describe Israel wandering in the wilderness. Joshua describes the partial conquest of the promised land. And Judges describes the unsettled and troubled occupation of the land because of the enemies Israel did not conquer. Second question, why was Judges written? It was written to establish the need for a godly king who would lead, govern and protect Israel from their enemies. And we see that from the structure of the book. Chapter 1 describes the failures of the tribes in the conquest. Chapters 2 to 16 describes, on the whole, the judges' failures, and chapters 17 to 21, the Levites' failures. 
And when you look at all these failures, you know that salvation is not going to come from the tribes, the Levites, or the judges. Israel needs a king. And the key verses in Judges say the same thing. Judges 17 verse 6, 18 verse 1, 19 verse 1, and 21 verse 25, four verses right at the end of Judges, basically all say the same thing. In those days there was no king in Israel, every man did what was right in his own eyes. In other words, Israel needs a godly king to deliver, protect, guide and govern. Third question, who were the judges? When we think of judges, we might think of sort of black-robed figures with law books behind them, with mallet in hand. That's not the kind of figure here. They were not judicial figures, but military figures. They were military deliverers. Men and one woman who were chosen by God, raised up and equipped by God, to effect a deliverance of Israel in a limited area of Israel. Fourth question, how do the judges point us to Jesus? Well, imagine you were a kid. Your dad told you you were going to the airport in a few weeks. You had to meet someone off the plane that you'd never seen before, but you must recognise him. He's carrying a million dollars, and you have to recognise him to get the money. Well, what would you say if you were a kid? You'd say, oh, dad, describe him. Tell me all about this man. Then maybe you'd say, draw me a picture. From both sides, close up, and from behind, and from the front. And then you would study and memorise these descriptions and pictures so that you can be sure to recognise him when he comes. When the day comes, you stand at the airport door, your eyes are bulging as you watch the people coming off the plane. You scan and survey until there he is. You recognise them because of all the prophetic pictures. Well, in some ways, the Old Testament is like that. God told the Old Testament people that his son was coming, not with a million dollars, but with salvation. God gave them pictures of sacrifices, the tabernacle, different personalities. For example, Joseph, David, many prophets and priests, lots and lots of pictures from different perspectives so that when Jesus came, people would recognize him and say, there he is. So when we're reading the Old Testament, when we're reading about judges, we're looking for pictures of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the ultimate judge, the ultimate military conqueror and deliverer of his people. Jephthah and the others, they were just little sketches. We can therefore look at Jephthah and see how he saves like Jesus. God created Jephthah with this purpose in mind. God shaped and formed him so that he would be like Jesus. First of all, consider Jephthah's context. God's people are groaning under oppression. They're distressed and suffering at the hands of their enemies. Similarly, Jesus, his context, he came to a church that was bruised, failing, groaning, sitting in darkness. Second, consider Jephthah's conception. He was the son of a harlot, we're told, a strange woman. He had a questionable birth. It was a a Canaanite harlot. He had a, a lowly and a humiliating birth. Jesus' conception was similar. He also had a questionable birth. Though it was pure and holy, it was 
questionable by many outside. Even Joseph was initially questioning and suspicious. And this all contributed to this lowly and humiliating start in life. Third, Jephthah's casting out. The sons of Gilead thrust him out and told him he would not inherit anything because of his harlot mother. Jephthah fled, cast out, rejected and despised by men. Similarly, Jesus too was cast out at an early age, out of his own country even, and his life was one of being despised and rejected of men. Fourthly, Jephthah's courage. He was a mighty man of valour. That's a description also used of Gideon. Though cast out, Jephthah was defending Israel's borders, protecting God's people in little enclaves on the perimeter of Israel. Similarly, Jesus was a man of great courage. Even even before he fought the greatest battle he would ever fight, he was fighting increasingly violent opposition and hostility, yet setting his face like a flint, doing battle where God had put him. Fifthly, Jephthah's companions. Some versions describe his companions as vain men or empty men, but this word is better translated as unimportant men. They were they were the nobodies. They were fellow rejects and outcasts. They, they weren't necessarily vain in the sense of being immoral. It was more just this, there was nothing to them. Just as David had attracted a band of nobodies in the cave of Adullam, so Jephthah attracted those who were disregarded by society and he shaped them and formed them into a lethal fighting force. Similarly, Jesus' companions are not usually the high, the mighty and the important and yet he too shapes and forms them into a mighty army. Sixthly, Jephthah's character. No other judge used God's name as much as Jephthah. He was a God-centred man. Similarly, Jesus, of course, was more God-centred and had God's name on his lips more than any other man before him or since. Seventhly, Jephthah's compassion. What would you do if you were cast out? Then the ones who cast you out came to you to ask you for help. <laughs> well, Jephthah certainly challenged these men. He reminded them of their previous sins, similarly as Joseph did with his brothers. But he was compassionate to them. Though undeserving, he forgave and went to help the undeserving. Similarly with Jesus, he came to his own They received him not, they cast him out, they crucified him, but he begins his church with, go, tell them the gospel, beginning at Jerusalem. Eighthly, Jephthah's caution. Although he did go with these men, he didn't go straight away. He questioned them to show them their previous sin and show how awful it was. He didn't commit himself to them immediately, but wanted to use this process to humble them, to teach them spiritual lessons, to do them spiritual good. Similarly, 
Jesus. We seek him, we're drawn to him, we're in distress. But yes, he questions and challenges us to search out our sincerity and to search out if we're really intense and real about this. He's saying, I want you to face your past, to repent of it and turn from it. Have you counted the cost? I'm going to reign over all your life, for all your life. Ninthly, Jephthah's communion. We're told in verse 11 that he uttered all his words before the Lord in Mizpah. The men were asking him to go perhaps to certain death. Could he trust them? Was this God's will? And so he poured out his heart before the Lord in communion with him in prayer. Similarly with the Lord Jesus, how many times we read of him praying, of pouring his heart out to the Lord, of not taking a step without communing with his Father. Tenth, Jephthah's conciliatory attitude, not just towards his own brethren who cast him out, but also towards the threatening king of Ammon. He didn't immediately go to war with him, but sent messengers twice to try and find a peaceful solution. Similarly, we find this conciliatory attitude in the heart of the Lord Jesus, who continually sends ambassadors of peace to try and find a peaceful solution, rather than go to war against his enemies. Eleventhly, think of Jephthah's counsel to the king of Ammon. He said to him, you've got your history wrong, And you've got your theology wrong. Jephthah brings the history of Israel from the scriptures. And he says you've got your theology wrong because it wasn't the Israelites that won this land. But God gave them it. Five times he says it was the Lord who gave them the land. Similarly Jesus counsels those who are opposed to him. Bringing perfectly from the scriptures history and theology. And saying to us, you've got your theology wrong, you've got your history wrong, you're in error, you're believing falsehood. Here's the truth, here's the counsel of God, the whole counsel of God. Twelfthly, think of Jephthah's consecration. In verse 29, after the king of Ammon says, no, it's going to be war, we're told the Holy Spirit comes upon Jephthah. And he makes the vow, which many people understand to be fulfilled, in the offering of his daughter as a burnt sacrifice. We're told, Jephthah vowed a vow unto the Lord and said, If you shall without fail deliver the children of Ammon into my hands, then it shall be that whatever comes forth of the doors of my house to meet me, when I return in peace from the children of Ammon, shall surely be the Lord's. And I will offer it up for a burnt offering. Well, Jephthah did not offer his daughter as a burnt sacrifice. Because he did not vow to offer his daughter as a burnt sacrifice. I want to give you ten proofs of that. First of all, consider Jephthah's previous godly character. He's a man of God. He's not a rash character. Notice how he dealt with the men who had wronged him when they came to ask his help. And also his dealings with the king of Ammon. He wasn't rash. He was calm, controlled, sober, balanced, reasonable. 
his previous godly character. Secondly, he knew the Bible. He knew the history of redemption. This was Jephthah's meat and drink. He knew the scriptures and therefore knew that human sacrifice was forbidden. Third, he was filled with the Spirit just before he made the vow. Would he really make such a rash vow in verse 30 and 31? When the Holy Spirit has just come upon him in verse 29. Would he make such a rash vow in such a spiritually elevated condition? Fourth, there are two possible translations of verse 31. And some Bible versions have this in the margins. We can translate verse 31 like this. When I return in peace, whatever I meet, it shall surely be the Lord's, and I will offer it up as a burnt sacrifice. Notice that. Whatever I meet, it shall surely be the Lord's, and I will offer it up as a burnt sacrifice. But, that word and can also be translated or. Let's re-translate that. When I return in peace, whatever I meet, it shall surely be the Lord's, or I will offer it up as a burnt sacrifice. I believe Jephthah has two possibilities in mind here for fulfilling this vow. He's saying, if it's a person, it will be the Lord's. If it's an animal, it will be given as a sacrifice. He's saying, when I return in peace, whatever comes out of my house to meet me first, if it's a person, it will be the Lord's. If it's an animal, it will be a burnt sacrifice. Fifthly, what he's doing here, this vowing of a person to the Lord, was quite common in these days. There was an order of women that were specially devoted to the Lord and served him in his place of worship. Sixthly, the emphasis in the consequences of fulfilling the vow is not on Jephthah's daughter losing her life, but on her losing her opportunity to bear a child to a man who was her husband. If you look at verses 37 to 39, Time and again, the emphasis is on her virginity, her virginity, her not being married, her knowing no man. So, it's not here so much about her becoming lifeless, but childless and husbandless. Also, verse 40, which in many versions is translated that the daughters of Israel went yearly to lament the daughter of Jephthah the Gileadite, for four days in a year. That word translated lament is actually not translated lament anywhere else in Scripture. It literally means to rehearse or to commemorate. That's how it's used elsewhere in Scripture. I don't believe these Israelite women are going to lament Jephthah's daughter's death, but to remember with worshipful joy her willingness to be devoted to God and his service. 
Eighthly, Leviticus tells us that rash vows can be repented of and replaced with money. So if this was a rash vow, they had two months to find this out and put it right. Ninthly, Jephthah's not punished for this. Instead, he reigns for six more years. I mean, would he ever have been followed by the people of Israel for six years if he had sacrificed his daughter? It's highly unlikely such a leader would command any respect. Tenthly, in the only other two places where Jephthah's mentioned, he's commended. 1 Samuel 12.11 and Hebrews 11.32 in the Hall of Faith. Jephthah did not sacrifice his daughter, but devoted her to the Lord's service. And we see in her a beautiful godliness and submission to the Lord's service. She's she says to her father, who's understandably upset, his only daughter is now going to leave him and go away and be devoted to the Lord's service. But she basically says to her father, look, Dad, God's given us victory over the Ammonites. That's just so much bigger than anything we can give to him, including even me devoting my little life to him for the rest of my life. So, I hope you can see Jephthah made a holy vow and fulfilled it in a holy manner. He was consecrated to the Lord. Similarly, Jesus made vows and promises and commitments that he kept regardless of the cost. Think also of Jephthah's conquest. He conquers Ammon. Similarly, Jesus beats all his and our enemies. And just as Jephthah had godly children, his daughter coming out to rejoice in God's victory, his daughter willingly being devoted to God's service, his daughter, yes, sorry that she'll never marry, sorry she'll never have children, but yes, let God's will be done. What a beautiful daughter. Similarly, Christ has beautiful sons and daughters willing to serve him and honour him all their days. So, I hope you can see how God has designed the judges in general, and Jephthah in particular, to be a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. To be a type, to be a prophetic picture of Christ's person and Christ's work, especially in this area of making and keeping holy vows and promises, regardless of the consequences. No wonder Jephthah's in the hall of faith. He truly deserves to be there. Jephthah not only saved like Jesus, he was saved by Jesus. He gives us a pattern not only of the coming Christ, but a pattern of faith in the coming Christ. That's the Apostle's argument in Hebrews 11. So, in terms of application to us, yes, we follow Jephthah in looking to the Messiah, but also in making and keeping holy vows and promises. Let this motivate us and inspire us and call us to make similarly holy 
and beautiful vows that we keep regardless of the cost or consequences. Jephthah stepped forward in faith and his faith is remembered now for all generations. He's not a beacon against rash vows, but an example to follow in making religious vows. And his reputation deserves resurrection. 